We are curious people, aren't we? I once drove a first grader on a 25-minute car ride, car ride in which they asked me 53 different questions. I was keeping track just for the fun of it, and for the record, that makes me the weirdo. When we hear about a fantastic accomplishment, we ask for more details. When an accomplishment is too fantastic, or a news story is too fantastic, we often question its authenticity, don't we? We're curious. We tend to ask a lot of, but what about questions, don't we? Showing that we are naturally doubters. Paul understood that about the human about the human race. He understood that tendency that pushes up against uh, the next part of his epistle to the church at Rome. If you haven't done so yet, would you please open your copy of the scriptures to the book of Romans? It's the sixth book of the Christian New Testament. It's a book that God the Holy Spirit led the apostle Paul to write to the church at Rome. And Paul had never yet been with these people. He, had, he was writing to them in advance of what he hoped would be a visit to them when he made his way to Rome. And he's mentioned that at the beginning of, of, of his letter, and he will mention it again at the end of his letter. So he wants, to, he wants to go to Spain. Did I say Rome? Sorry. He wants to go to Spain. So he's going to go via Rome on his way to Spain. Uh, the apostle, this, this, uh, Paul, unfolds this, this beautiful letter, epistle on the undeserved, unmatched, and unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he communicates that the gospel is something, it's, it's good news that we just don't deserve. Uh, Christians, people don't deserve to be recipients of this kindness. Um, it's unmatched because, because nothing can come close to it. God has done something that nothing, nobody else could do. And it's unstoppable. The good news is advancing. Jesus said that he's building his church and that not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. So the gospel is advancing. And I know I'm, 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 I'm preaching it in the introduction, right? I'm, I'm, but friend, Christian, brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what's happening in our world around us, no matter how we feel about what's taking place in our world, be reminded that the gospel is advancing. It's unstoppable. It's going forward. That's good news for us. We've covered the first eight chapters, roughly half of the letter, and it's, it's been wonderful to be reminded uh, over and over again of God's grace and his power and the inseparable love with which he has put upon us. He has loved us in a way that we cannot be separated from it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But now we come to the next section of the letter, the, the defense of the gospel. And these chapters, 9, 10, and 11, uh, direct, give us direct instruction on the sovereignty of God. Uh, they talk about the promises of God to, to the nation and to the individuals of Israel. And talk about the plan of God, how the plan of God for salvation extends beyond the Jews and to Gentiles. Please follow along as I read from God's Word, Romans chapter 9, and I'll read the first 13 verses today. I say, in tr I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God, the worship of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calls, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Jews will ask if God sent his son as the promised Messiah so that we could be redeemed, how come ancient Israel did not recognize or accept the one that was sent? How could Jews have rejected the Messiah and put him to death? If Jews of every age have not recognized Jesus, then it's inconceivable to believe that Jesus is who Christians claim him to be. That's what some Jewish people might say. So Paul seeks to defend the gospel that he has already taught, that he has already explained to us in the first eight chapters. Paul wants to make sure that people understood that God had not, has not, forsaken Israel. He wants us to understand that Israel's unbelief, people of Israel, their unbelief, is actually consistent with God's promises to Israel. Israel's unbelief has not canceled God's promises to Israel. You'll remember from last week that in the opening verses of this chapter, as I, I read just a few minutes ago, that Paul makes this dramatic declaration of his love for his fellow Jews, his kinsmen according to the flesh. The apostle Paul loved the Jews so much that he was willing to be accursed in their place. You remember that he was, we said he was speaking hyperbolically. He's, he's saying it in an exaggeration, but he loved them that much. He's saying, I would rather be condemned than my own kinsmen, my Jew, Jewish brother friends. Paul is defending what he's taught us over the last eight chapters. How can this be true? All of this be true if Israel has rejected God. Even a largely unbelieving Israel does not contradict or cancel out the promises of God. Neither God's sovereignty nor human unbelief can cancel out the promises of God. And that reality, it, it sobers and it comforts and it motivates genuine Christians. Paul begins by te teaching, teaching us 
about the unbreakable plan of God. Look again at the very beginning of verse 6. Of verse six. It says, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. The ESV says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul mentioned this almost as an aside. It's just a very brief part of, of, this, of, these, of this passage, but it's really foundational to the whole passage. God's word cannot fail. Paul under, wants us to understand that what God has promised will come to pass. Even though we as Christians in 2022 know that God's word and believe and hold the fact that God's word cannot fail, let's not pass over that too quickly this morning. Think about the ramifications. Think about what would be true if we serve a God whose promises do fail. Think about what, would ha- what it would mean for our walk with God, for under our understanding of the scriptures, for our life, for our eternity, if God's promises could fail, if God was not true to his word. Paul has already offered us four chapters of assurances. So why was Paul making this point now? Because he understood that, the, that Jews who, who read this letter were rejecting, in the process of rejecting God. It was easy for them or anyone to think that God's word had, had failed, that God's word had none effect. Here's the reasoning. If, if Jesus Christ, if Jesus is the Christ, and if he came to fulfill God's promises, and if God's chosen people rejected Christ, well then, logically, doesn't that mean that God's word has somehow failed? Listen to some of the things that God has already promised to the people. In Jeremiah, we, we read, For thus says the Lord, Just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. And then we read from Isaiah 55 this morning, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We can think about the deportation of the Jews by Assyria in 722 B.C. and by Babylon in 586 and and Rome in A.D. 70. But God, even through all of that, had not gone gone back on any of his promises. After some 2,000 years, in 1948... Israel was reestablished again and again recognized as a sovereign nation. Friends, we simply cannot look at the circumstances and events of, of history and make a final conclusion that those events, that's, those circumstances have contradicted the promises of God because God's plan is still in the process of unfolding. And that's the point that Paul is making to the church at Rome. God has not forgotten about Israel. Sometimes, in our walk with the Lord, it feels like God has forgotten what he has told us, doesn't it? If we're being down-to-earth, transparent, and blunt, sometimes we can get to feeling or to thinking 
like we're all alone in a sea of opposition. Elijah felt like that. He called out to God and he said, I alone am left and they seek my life. The majority of Israel was pagan during Elijah's day. He felt all alone. But the reality was that God had saved many more than Elijah was aware of. There have been times over the last year that I was discouraged. And I called on God's promises and I called them back to him as if God could forget the promises that he made to one of his children. And I was thinking, what in the world tempted to doubt the promises of God? Our culture is full of examples. Who would have thought that intelligent people would not be willing to define what a woman is? In these times, it can feel like we stand in a sea of opposition all alone. Brothers and sisters, we should always start with a factual data. God's word cannot fail. God's word is always being made effective. The Christians in Rome could have been tempted to believe that because of Israel's unbelief that God had failed to keep his promises to the nation. Paul says, no way, it's not even possible. Christian, you and I, let's start with trust. Let's, let's train our hearts and our minds with the truth so that when all around us breaks loose, we can say, I believe what God has told me in his word. Our hearts are comforted when we remember that all of his promises are unbreakable. He won't leave us. June and Larry, he is with you. He will not leave you. He won't condemn us for our sin because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. He will continue a good work in us. He will build his church and praise God, Jesus will come again. All of his promises are yes and amen. So whatever trial you face today, Christian, be reminded that God's word can never, has never, will never fail. For the Christian, one of the first steps in facing any difficulty is to hold to the unchanging and unbreakable word of God. Neither God's sovereignty nor human unbelief can cancel the promises of God in salvation. And that reality, it sobers us, it comforts us, it motivates us. So Paul explains, he, he mentions here at the beginning of the passage, he says, okay, it's the unbreakable plan of God. Next, in verses, the rest of verse 6, 7, and 8, and 9, he talks about the unconstrained plan of God. Let me read, read those verses again. He says, it's not as though the word of God has, God has taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. So he's saying they are not all of Israel which are of Israel. I'll explain that in a minute. Verse 7, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed, or counted as the children of God. Verse 9, for this is the word of the promise. He says, so this is what the promise that I made says. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. Here is where Paul announces what he's going to take the next three chapters to unfold, namely, defining Israel. Paul will explain that all of the nation of Israel is not spiritual Israel. That just because someone is an offspring of Abraham 
doesn't make him a child of God. That some people who are racially descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not going to be true Israel. And others who are physically descended from them will be. Paul reminds us in verse 7 that only one of Abraham's sons was, was accepted by God. You remember Ishmael, Hagar's son. But he is not the one who received the promise. Abraham had six other sons by another wife, Keturah. But just like with Ishmael, none of those were heir to the promise of God. God said, not all are children of Abraham just because they are Abraham's offspring. He says, but through Isaac will your offspring be named. God knew that throughout history there will be unbelieving Jews that were, not, that, that were part of the nation of Israel. That was true in the Old Testament. That was true in the New Testament. It's true today. During his incarnation, Jesus called those 12 special disciples, 12 men to follow him. And one of them was named Nathaniel. And in John's Gospel, the first, first chapter of John's Gospel, we read, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile or deceit. Now why would Jesus say that about this Nathaniel? Because much of Israel was deceived. Much of Israel was rejecting the Lord at that point. We read of what the Pharisees thought. They said, Abraham is our father, thinking that because they were a member of the commonwealth of Israel, that they were okay, that they were saved. There were thousands of Jews in Israel at the point of Jesus' incarnation, and he pointed to Nathanael as a true, genuine Israelite. In other words, there were some are part of a, of a remnant, the true spiritual Israel. Paul's point then was that being an Israelite didn't make someone an heir of the promise. God's plan of salvation is unconstrained. God is absolutely free to bring anyone to salvation. Paul was teaching us that God's plan of salvation is not limited to Israel. The principle is easily understood in this way. It's grace rather than race. In his saving of individuals, God is, is not confined or constrained by the logic or the wisdom or understanding of the human mind. God is not held by that, what we understand. God is free. He's, he's completely unconstrained in his work of, of salvation. Just because someone was a child of Abraham didn't mean they were a child of God. Likewise, all of the visible church is not the redeemed church. There is a true church, a true bride of Christ that is made up of everyone who is genuinely a child of God and has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. But there is a visible church in our world. There are people who claim the name of Christ, but are not redeemed. They have not repented of their sin and believed in Jesus. The members of the true bride of Christ are determined by God and by God alone. So I would encourage you this morning to search your own hearts. Are you part of the true church? Have you been given new life? Have you been born again? 
Or you only experienced, have you only experienced some of the externals of a visible church? You're invited to, to, the Lord invites you to call on Him to be saved. If you have questions about salvation, we would encourage you to talk with us after the service today. You see, the externals are important. Being baptized is a matter of obedience to the Lord. It's a public testimony that you are a child of God. You're declaring to the world, I am a Christ follower. I am God's child. We plan to have a baptism on Resurrection Sunday on April the 17th. If you are interested in taking that step of obedience, let me know. But baptism doesn't make you a child of God. Attending a church uh, is, is a biblical mandate. We are called to assemble together as a church. That's one reason why live streaming is not church. You aren't gathering together. Going to church, though, as important as it is, does not make you a child of God. Church membership is really important. There are opportunities that members have that, that non-members don't have. There are priorities that members have that non-members don't receive. We're, we're planning a membership class in the coming days, coming weeks. Let me know if you'd like to join the fellowship of Harvest Bible Church. Being a member of a local church is really important for one's growth. It's a mutual blessing between you and the people of the church. Members receive um, the, the blessing of your gifts, and you receive the blessing of the other members' gifts. But being a member of the church doesn't make you a child of God. There's no inside track, if you will. The only way a person beca can become righteous is through faith in Jesus Christ. So what do we learn from verses 6, 7, 8, and 9? We learn that anyone can be saved. God can bring anyone into his family. Further, God is not only uh, not, con uh, not constrained by, by, by a race, God is not constrained by the rules of nature. Somehow, beyond human and medical explanation, God allowed Abraham at a good old age to have a, a little bit of extra pep in his step. And Sarah, at a good old age, gave birth to a son, another proof of God's unbreakable plan. God was not constrained by the laws of nature. It was a supernatural work. God raised up Isaac at a particular time, and that's how God has worked through the ages. He raised up Ruth and Mordecai. He raised up Esther for such a time as this. He raised up Daniel and Solomon. And he raised up Jesus, who was born of a virgin, a supernatural birth. We're reading Paul to the church of Galatia. He, he wrote, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive a, adoption as sons. God is not limited by anything. God's plan can go forward in spite of the laws of nature, and the reasoning of humanity. Neither God's sovereignty nor man's unbelief can cancel the promises of God and salvation. That reality sobers us, it comforts us, and it motivates us. The plan of God is unbreakable. The plan of God is, is unconstrained. And Paul tells us in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13 that the plan of God is unconditional. Look at verse 10 with me. Paul says, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children 
being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but because of him that calls. It was said unto her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Here is where we really see God's purposes revealed. In verse 10, so we, we learn that salvation does not come via ethnicity. Both of these sons, Jacob and Esau, came from the same parents as compared to, to Ishmael. But one, was but one, Jacob was loved, Esau was not. So it's not about ethnicity. They both came from the same parents. Salvation is not conditional on what family you were born into. Salvation is not conditional upon which family you were born into. There are some Christians, even strong denominations, who believe that their children are born into the covenant family. They believe that because they are part of God's covenant, that their children who are born to them will be as well. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, this passage is clear teaching to the contrary. Ishmael and Esau were both descendants of Abraham, but the covenantal love of God was not passed on to Ishmael or Esau. Salvation is not conditioned, conditional upon what family you were born into. Verse 11 tells us that salvation is not conditional on our behavior. Paul says, for the children being not born yet, neither having done either good or bad. Well, obviously they had not been born yet if they hadn't done anything good or bad because as soon, it seems like as soon as they're born, they start doing something bad, right? God didn't look down through time at Jacob's life and Esau's life and decide who was going to be faithful and then bless the one who would be. Jacob was the supplanter. Jacob was the deceiver. Jacob was not some spiritual hero. Just look at how, how he lived his life. Salvation is not conditioned upon, conditional upon our behavior. And in verse 12, salvation does not come from, from cultural norms or from, from birth order. She was told, Rebecca was told, the older shall, uh, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. Salvation is completely unconditional upon cultural norms. So apart from any condition, God elects those who become heirs of his promise. Paul has explained then that there is nothing within the persons of Jacob and Esau that could have been the basis for God's choice of one over the other. Salvation is completely unconditional. That's my testimony that should be the testimony of anybody who has ever been born again. There is nothing within me. There's nothing that I have done. There's nothing that I could do. That there's nothing that, that, that I can do. There's nothing within me that can be the basis for God choosing me over choosing someone else. Why did God save me? Why did God choose to put his love on me? Why has God been kind to me? There's no explanation apart from amazing grace. God has been kind to me. God has loved me. Salvation occurs to fulfill the purposes of God in election. God's purpose in election is established not based on God's prediction, but on the fact 
that this prediction was made apart from any individual accomplishments of those twins. Abraham was chosen. Many others were not. Isaac was chosen. Ishmael was not. Jacob was chosen. Esau was not. God's purposes are fulfilled because he alone elects people to be part for his purposes. Now, let's consider verse 13 for a minute. Verse 13 says, As it is written, Jacob have, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Paul, maybe you have a note in your copy of the scriptures. Paul is quoting from the prophet of Malachi, chapter number 1, verses 2 and 3. The first thing that would be helpful to our understanding of verse 13 is to understand, to clarify what is meant by the word hates. When we say that we hate something, we're usually talking about disdain. We hate the, the pet peeves of other people. We hate the soapboxes that people get on. We have disdain for that. Or maybe we're talking about a vegetable. Somebody should say amen. I hate this, and we fill in the blank because of that. Or maybe we say that we hate a particular sports team. We loathe, we just don't like the food or the sports team or this, this, this hobby horse that somebody is on. It's not the same idea here, though. For instance, in, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Brothers and sisters, uh, those of us who are in Christ, who claim Jesus as our Savior, we are disciples. And Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, we can't be his disciples if we don't hate our mother and father and our spouse and our children and our family. Now we know that Jesus does not mean that we should loathe our family members. Jesus wasn't teaching us to have disdain for our parents. Rather, Jesus was teaching us that we should prefer Jesus that we should prioritize Jesus, that we should love Jesus more than all others. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's talking about a, a basic love for all of his creatures. But God has a special love that he sets on his children. So in reference to Esau then, the bottom line is that God was not filled with, with, with hatred and loathing Esau, but rather that he had a special love, a purposeful love for Jacob. There are a couple of ways that we can interpret this biblically. Some prefer to interpret it corporately, that there were two nations uh, at war, even in the womb, um, that we, we would say that uh, that, that God was, was loving Jacob, the nation, and, and hating Esau. Like we refer to the tribes of Israel, such and such happened to Manasseh, and such and such happened to Reuben, etc. But there's a second way, and this is to, to interpret it individually, God's love or hatred for, indi for individually for Jacob and Esau. And that's what I hold to. I believe that's the, the best interpretation. Paul has been talking about individuals, who are or are not children of the promise. 
And it's, and it's talking about salvation, children of the promise. So it's, it's challenging to think that it refers to a whole nation. So what does Paul mean with, when, when he says Jacob I, uh, when he's referring to God saying, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? He's talking about God's love for Jacob, that God had set his love on the individual of Jacob. God's hatred of Esau is not despising Esau, but not electing him. God set his special love on Jacob. Augustine said it this way, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. Now, Admittedly, this particular section of Romans is very strong on God's action in the salvation of an individual. It's wise, I think, just to, just to mention, to briefly remind us that chapter 10 will teach us that we must be absolutely unwavering on the need for personal faith in Jesus. The Bible teaches us that Christians have faith in Jesus because God has chosen to set his love on us. You can feel the biblical tension there, can't you? It's not a tension that uh, we need to be ashamed of. It's not a tension that we need to be worried about. Because after all, this is God's design. This is God's plan. This is God's word telling us kind of both ends. It's not a tension that we need to, to work out even and to understand completely in our own mind. We don't have God's mind. We have finite minds. God set his love on Jacob. Think about Romans 8, 29 through 30. But not on Esau. Esau. And he did this before the twins were born. God chose to put Jacob above Esau. Not because Jacob was superior. God chose to love Jacob in a different way because of his unconditional choice to do so. Jacob's election was not based on what he would do, but on what God would do. Election would be conditional if we had something, if we had to do something in order for God to elect us. But if we have to do something, then that would teach us that salvation is by works. And we know that cannot be true. Pastor Tim Keller summarizes how the Christian can respond to this teaching. And he says it in one sentence. This teaching is... Un it, mm, he says it in one sentence. This teaching is easy to understand, but not easy to accept. It's easy to understand, but not easy to accept. This teaching does not mean that God is arbitrary. If I can reverently say it this way, it's not eeny, meeny, miny, mo. God is not arbitrary in salvation. Paul isn't informing us that God has no reasons, but he is informing us that we don't know the reasons. Christian, be okay with that. Be okay with not understanding everything. Maybe you're thinking, well, Pastor John, that's pretty, that's pretty strong. You're declaring with authority that God has set his love on some people in ways that he doesn't in others. That's what I'm saying that the Bible says. I'm repeating what the Apostle Paul says. Maybe it would be helpful again to think of the alternative. If it was up to us, 
if salvation was up to what we, if, 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 if what we were able to do with our lives or think or figure out, if we're up to us, it kind of crashes the rest of the New Testament teaching that we are saved by grace alone, not by works. Pastor Josh put on the front of the bulletin for us um, appropriate words from the Gospel of John. The first, uh, first chapter, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We, as Christ followers, have been born of God. How do we respond to Paul's teaching of, 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 of Jacob have I, have I loved and Esau have I hated? How do we respond to the fact that some who are of, of, of Abraham's descendants will not be part of true Israel, not have, be, inherit, be heirs of the promise? How do we respond to this teaching? Let me just note three and then I'll close in prayer. First, we respond with, with worship and thanksgiving. God has set his love on us. Christian, God loves you in this way. Be sobered by this reality. Give regular, daily thanks for his love, for him setting his love on you. Be reminded of what the alternative is and respond with awe to his amazing grace to you. How do we respond? We respond with worship of our God. Second, we respond with, with living in light of this grace. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. We rest in his unbreakable word. When all around our soul gives way, be reminded that he is our hope and our stay. So walk in obedience because you have been born of God. And trust God. Yes, initial faith, initial trust in salvation. Trust him, though, as you wait for others around you to be saved. You don't know all that God is doing. You don't know all that God is working in their life. You don't know what he, is, what he is accomplishing behind the scenes or out from your knowledge. But you do know that God doesn't change his word, that God's promises are yes and amen. You can always trust God. God does not fail. So neither God's sovereignty nor human unbelief can cancel out the promises of God in salvation. Friend, that reality sobers us. It comforts us. And it motivates genuine Christians. You can always trust your God. Let's pray.